as well. Well, this is the last time you're going to hear me say this for a very long time. Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. To the book of Hebrews. Here we are at the end of our journey through the book of Hebrews. If you're visiting today and this is your first time, you have come to the last sermon in the book of Hebrews. It only took us 13 months and 44 sermons. I actually thought it was 43 sermons, and I mentioned that to a guy at Wednesday night dinner, and he said, no, I think you're wrong. It's 44 sermons, to which I said, I think I would know how many sermons I've preached. So I went back and counted, and he was right. It's 44 sermons from the book of Hebrews. Um, I just want to say on a personal note, I mean, a lot of things are in my heart. First of all, I'm thankful for you, for a church that loves to open their Bible and hear the preaching of God's word. There's a reason I start every sermon by saying, Open your Bibles. I just want to clarify at the very beginning, this is what we do, right? I got nothing to say to you that doesn't come from here. And so we want to make that clear when we start. But I just love your appetite and your desire for the word of God. It's so encouraging to me uh, when I feel like, as the prophets say, the word of God is rare in these days. Uh, I love your appetite for the word. And I'm just personally encouraged by just the way the Lord used this book in my life. I needed this. I preached it because I thought you needed it. Um, but, uh, I would say chapter eight was a pivotal moment in my life. I did not expect that. Uh, I preached one sermon from Hebrews eight. You could go back and, and listen to that, but God really changed my vision for pastoral ministry from that chapter. It was there that God really convicted me to lead you well and not to lead you through guilt or manipulation or heaping more burdens upon you, but rather lead you. Uh, by leading you into a personal, real, living, dynamic relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And trust that if I can lead you into that kind of life, then Jesus in you is going to lead you well. And it was really helpful for me. And I I can say after uh, all of these months, 13 months in the book of Hebrews, I love Jesus more. I really do. I've seen him in new ways. Uh, My affections for him have been raised as I've thought more deeply about him. And the truth is, That's the reason this book was written. This book was written so that we might, as Hebrews 12 says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So the goal is that we might see Jesus more clearly and love him more and follow him more faithfully. You know, this book was written really to a church much like this one in the sense that it was written to a room filled with professing Christians. Meaning those in the room, most of them had professed to know Jesus Christ, whether that was a real profession or not, uh, the author didn't know, but he knew that they had professed Christ. But yet they were living under a lot of immense pressure. They had chosen uh, to go away from family and friends and follow Jesus. And so they were under political and religious and social demonic pressure, the pressure of the flesh, all of that pulling them away. And the author is just worried that in the midst of all of that pressure that they might give up. And there's something a bit mysterious here, but we know that it happens because when Jesus gave the parable of the soils, he said, there are many who make a profession of faith and they will follow for a while and they will obey for a while, but they don't finish well. And if they don't finish, they have proven that their profession of faith was not authentic. And that does seem a bit mysterious, but we all know people like that. We all know people who've prayed a prayer or made a decision, but they didn't finish well. They didn't remain faithful to the end. And so the author of this book comes with that concern that those who might have made a profession wouldn't finish, wouldn't stay strong. And so he's pleading with them to 
follow the Lord until the end. He is, as it says in Hebrews 13, verse 22, a verse we actually looked at in our first sermon, he is giving them a word of exhortation. The whole book is an exhortation, means he's pleading with them to remain faithful. And sometimes it comes in the form of a warning, sometimes it comes in the form of encouragement. But throughout Hebrews, it sounds something like this. Pay close attention to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. Don't drift away from Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus and tour, endure until the very end. Hold fast to Jesus. And that is really the goal. If you were to summarize the book of Hebrews, it would be hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold him tightly. Don't let go of Jesus. But what I love so much is the way in which the author motivates us to do that. And so, in a sense, that's nothing new. Hopefully, every time you go to church, uh, the pastor is calling you to hold on to Jesus. But it's the way in which he does it. You see, he doesn't do it through a sense of duty or guilt or obligation or manipulation. He doesn't fear us into it. He doesn't even get us what we often call a debtor's ethic, meaning Jesus did all that for you, then you should live for him. He doesn't do that. The way in which he motivates us to follow Jesus, look, is by holding Jesus up and allowing us to see him in all of his beauty and all of his glory and all of his greatness so that by seeing Jesus, we might realize how foolish it would be to leave this for all of this. Like, why would we go back to this? Why would we go back to all of these things that promised so many things and never delivered? Why would we give up something this beautiful for something this meaningless and temporary? And so from beginning to end, that's the goal. Like a precious stone, the author in every verse holds up Jesus and says, look at Jesus. He's better than anything. He's more beautiful and more glorious and more worthy of our affection and our attention. I just pray that somehow by God's grace, that what our ministry would be about here at Prince is to simply every week, week after week, to hold up Jesus and to get you to see him and to love him more. And your motive for following Jesus would never be a sense of duty or guilt, but it would be the fact that you have been captured by a true picture of just how good and loving and kind and gracious Jesus really is. And so from the very first verse to the last, that's what the book of Hebrews is doing to us. I mean, just think about the way in which it begins. Listen to these words in these first four verses of Hebrews 1. It says, long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers and by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So from the very first, he says that Jesus is the heir of all things. He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's upholding all things. He is superior to the angels. It goes on to say that he is eternal. He is holy. He is happy. He is sovereign. And that's just chapter one. And then in every single chapter is reminding us that Jesus is in fact our captain. He is our apostle. He is our great high priest. He is the forerunner, the mediator, the author, and perfecter of our faith. And so it just makes sense 
that when we come to the very last verses of this book, we would get one more name for Jesus. Just one more. A name that hasn't been used before in the book of Hebrews. It's new. And he saves it to the last. And I think at the very end of our time together, we'll see exactly why he saved it to the last. But it's there in this text. One last reminder of who Jesus is. So let's read it together, starting in Hebrews 13, verse 17. If you're there, say amen. It says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, and those who come from Italy send you greetings, grace, be with all of you. Did you notice it? The one last reminder of who Jesus is. It begins with a familiar word, a word that is not new in the book of Hebrews. It's the word great, because we are told over and over that we have a great high priest who brings a great salvation, who also brings with it a great reward, and we have a great cloud of witnesses reminding us to remain faithful. There's a lot of great in the book of Hebrews, but Here's a new one. It says that Jesus is also the great shepherd of the sheep. You see it in verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. One last word about who Jesus is. Now this is saying something to us wonderful about Jesus as he is the great shepherd not just a shepherd and not even just the good shepherd of John 10, but he is in fact the great shepherd through his death, burial, and resurrection. But it also says something not so encouraging about us. It is saying that in this metaphor, we are the sheep. And that's a pretty sad and and pitiful statement. The reality is uh, sheep are fearful and they're stubborn and they're nervous and they're helpless and they're defenseless and they wander and they are in fact a, a little dumb. There are two things about sheep. Sheep cannot be outside of a fold. They can't. A sheep alone is going to be killed. It won't last. So a sheep has to be a part of a fold and a sheep, listen, has to have a shepherd. A sheep has to have a shepherd. A sheep just simply does not have the ability mentally or physically to defend himself. It has really no ability to feed itself. Uh, The reason that it has to be led to streams of water is because if not, it will drink water that will harm it. I mean, sheep are just unable to do anything alone. They have to have a fold and they have to have a shepherd. One of my favorite little word pictures about sheep is that in the spring, before they're sheared, when their wool is really, really large and, and heavy, 
It often rains, and if it rains, they will often fall over, and when they fall over, they're not able to get themselves back up. So the picture you have is a sheep on its side or on its back just kind of doing this, flailing, and if a shepherd doesn't come and get it over, the sheep is going to die right there. Most likely die of starvation or thirst, or some animal's going to come get it, and that's you and me. That's us. That's a good picture of us. So when you imagine yourself, imagine that. I mean, that helpless. And everything about that picture is pitiful. Like you can just see him just kind of slowly just plopping over. And just doing this for a really long time, hoping someone will come help. Now, the reason I more adamantly say that's you, and I don't want to start anything here. I know this is a controversial thing, but uh, I identify actually as a lion. Um. Sometimes I identify as an eagle. It just depends on the moment, the need of the moment. So when I go to bed at night, I, I just imagine myself as this fierce, strong, mighty lion, the, the king of the jungle, the jungle of Oconee County, and um, an eagle soaring above the ordinary. There's a lot of birds, but there's an eagle here who's soaring. So that's how I identify. But uh, you know the thing about identifying yourself as something, at the end of the day, you are what you are. And as much as I'd love to identify as a lion, and as love, much as I'd love to identify as an eagle, I'm a sheep. And all of those words apply to me. I'm really a bit pitiful. I'm helpless. I have a tendency to wander away. I'm in incredible danger if I'm alone. I have to have people around me. I need a fold. I need care and protection. I need leadership and direction. The reality is I need a shepherd. And I find it interesting that the one person who seems to tell us the most about this is the one who is known as being the mighty warrior of the Old Testament. I mean, it's Psalm 23 that really gives us the most insight on what it means to be a shepherd and a sheep. If you're new to our church, you think Hebrews was wrong. Uh, during quarantine, I think I preached like 18 sermons from Psalm 23. So I'm starting to realize I may have a, a problem with that. But listen, this is the guy who, when he walked into a town, the people would chant, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. David was a mighty warrior, not just because of Goliath, but because of a thousand other military wins. And yet, this man who was viewed as a mighty warrior got alone and laid his head on his pillow at night and was very aware that even though everyone else saw him as a warrior, he was just a sheep. And even he needed a shepherd just like all of us do. Because if we don't have one, we're in danger. If we do have one, we can say with Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. It is in fact one of the most prominent metaphors in all of the Old Testament to describe to us our relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus then comes in, God in the flesh dwelling among us and speaking to these Jewish people who would have certainly known the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep, because not just in Psalm 23, all over the prophets, Jesus says that I am your shepherd and you are the sheep. Jesus walks in and says this, hey, listen, I know you know what this means, but I want you to know I am, Jesus says, the good shepherd. So that's a huge statement in front of these Jews. Listen, I am the one who has come to give you care. I am the one who has come to give you guidance and protection and deliverance. I am the good shepherd. You are still a sheep, helpless and stubborn and wandering and a little bit pitiful and dumb. You do not have what it takes to make it in this life on your own. And so Jesus says, I have come as the one who've rescued you. 
But what's interesting about Jesus making that statement is this. Is that when then John the Baptist saw Jesus, he didn't say, behold the shepherd of the sheep. What did he say? Behold the Lamb of God. He said, there's the, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the earth. And all of a sudden what we discover is this. The slain Lamb is the one who has become the great shepherd. The slain lamb was the one who has become the great shepherd. Isaiah 53 prophesies about Jesus that he will be led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he was. And that's exactly what verse 20 says. God of peace brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. And so Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, was the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. And the only way that any of us will have our sins forgiven and be brought back into right relationship with God is if we trust Jesus' death as the payment for our sins. His blood shed for us. And if you don't let Jesus pay for your sin, then you will pay for your sin eternity in hell. And so Jesus, through his death, is inviting us to confess our sin, to acknowledge that we're a sheep, and say, we need you to be our shepherd. And we say, well, how can a slain lamb become our shepherd? And the answer is, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the slain lamb has become our great shepherd. And so now, at the end of Hebrews, he is not simply a good shepherd, he is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is our shepherd. He is the one that has come from the moment in which we give our life to him until the moment we meet with him in glory to give us all of the protection and guidance and leadership and direction that we need. Now, the reason we have to understand that is because you can't understand the verses before that without understanding the emphasis of the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because verses 17 through 19 are written with that in mind. Listen to what these say in verses 17 through 19. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. And pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, those verses out of context could cause a lot of problems. Those verses in context are really beautiful for you and for me. Because the question we ask is this, well, how is it that Jesus shepherds me? <laughs> how do I get in on the shepherding of Jesus? I need his provision and his care and his guidance and leadership. And certainly we know from Psalm 23 that a lot of that happens in your own personal time with the Lord Jesus. You need to know him and walk with him and depend upon him and look to him and hold fast to him. But listen to this. In great part, the way in which Jesus shepherds his sheep is through the ministry of the local church. He does it through the ministry of the local church. In the same way a sheep cannot survive outside of a fold, a believer cannot survive outside of the ministry of the local church. And in the same way that a sheep cannot survive without a shepherd, you cannot survive without pastors in your life. This is the way in which God has so ordained it. And that's the reason he uses the same word, shepherd of the sheep, to refer to pastors so often in the New Testament. What is a pastor? A pastor is a shepherd of the sheep. Not the great shepherd, but an under-shepherd, shepherding the people of God on his behalf. 
If you're taking notes, write down 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. I want you to hear these verses. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Listen to what it says. So I exhort the elders among you. Peter, wrapping up this letter, speaks not to the church here, but to the pastors. Uh, I exhort the elders, a word for pastors, among you. As a fellow elder, Peter says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That word shepherd there is where we get our word for pastor. Not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you. He says to the pastors, don't do this for shameful gain, but do it eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being example to the flock. Listen to this. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he says this to the pastors. He says, listen, give oversight to the church. You have to manage, you have to lead, you have to give direction. Be an elder, be a spiritual leader. But also shepherd the flock of God that is given to you. Because why? Because at some point, the chief shepherd's going to return. And when the chief shepherd returns, every single pastor is given account for how well they shepherded the sheep. So that's why when I read verse 17, I don't get puffed up. Like, I don't feel like, that's right, church. You better obey and submit. What I see in verse 17 is that someday every one of your pastors at Prince Avenue will stand before God and give an account for how well they shepherded God's sheep entrusted to us. That's what I read in verse 17. That's what I read in 1 Peter 5. That is an overwhelming and humbling thought. And yet still... There is a command here to obey your leaders and submit to them. I, I can't just because it's a bit awkward, neglect to talk about that because it's true. But again, you read that in the context of 1 Peter 5. Well, it's not for shameful gain. It's not domineering. Well, what is it? It's this. is that God has so created the church to be a group of sheep with identifiable shepherds. And those shepherds have a responsibility to walk with Jesus. And as they walk with Jesus, they do as the Apostle Paul says, follow me as, as I follow the Lord. And to the extent that we walk with Jesus and lead you in the path of righteousness, Psalm 23 says, and call you to be faithful and to walk in holiness and to trust and follow Jesus, to that degree you should follow our leadership. Because that's the role that God has given to us in your life. And the means by which God has chosen to shepherd his people is through the ministry of a local church and the ministry of pastors. And every believer is intended to be a part of an identifiable fold. And every believer is intended to have pastors and shepherds over them, watching over them. Because look at what it says, they keep watch over your souls. I will say I did find it quite ironic when I looked at that word keep awake or to uh, keep watch because it means to keep awake. It's just funny to me, given the fact that pastors often have the reputation of putting people to sleep, uh, their admonition here is to keep people awake. But you know what it means? Is the pastor's role is to keep you holding fast. That's it. 
Keep holding on to Jesus. Like my responsibility every time I get in front of you is to simply say this, hold on to Jesus. Don't lose sight of Jesus. Don't loosen your grip on Jesus. I'm continuing to call you to give your life to Jesus, to don't leave Jesus for any other thing that promises something better because there's nothing better than Jesus. And as I lead you into that, from the word of God, instructing you in the way of righteousness, it is that which you are called to obey and to listen to. And it says this, it says, and you should do it in a way that allows us to do our job. You see that with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. You know, the book of Hebrews was written primarily with the book of Numbers in mind. We've talked about that a few times, and you may have skipped the book of Numbers, and there's parts of it I can understand. But the story of Numbers is really the reason why Hebrews exist. Because it tells us about these people who started well, but they complained and grumbled. And the result is they didn't inherit the fullness of the promises of God. And Moses heard from God, tried to lead the people, but yet they grumbled and rebelled against Moses. And the result is, is they were harmed because they didn't enter into the promises of God. So he's given that exact illustration. He's saying, listen, the people of Israel groaned and complained and constantly grumbled at the leadership of, of Moses. And the result is it was no advantage to them. They missed out on the promises of God. That's why he's saying this. He's saying, allow this to be done with, with joy. Don't make this a burden by groaning and complaining. Now listen to this. A few, uh, a few months ago, I just in a sermon, just just. Off the cuff, it wasn't planned or in my notes. I just made some comment about how I love my job. And later that week, I got an email from a young lady who was visiting our church. And she said, I just wanted you to know the thing I remember the most about your sermon was that statement that you loved your job. She goes, I couldn't believe it. She said, I've never heard a pastor say he liked his job. She said, I, I always felt like pastors wanted us to think that their job is so hard and it's so difficult and everybody should feel sorry for the pastors and they seem to be so burdened. And I thought, you know what? I think she's right. Like, I do think that's the narrative that pastors often create. And I don't know if it's we like to play the martyr or, you know, we often hear you saying, well, what do you guys do all week? I don't know what it is. But I think sometimes we try to create this idea that, that you should feel sorry for us. And let me tell you something. I love what I do. Not only because it's what God has called me to do, but listen to me, you do make it a joy. Like, I'm not just saying that. I love you. And I love being able to minister together with you and, and for you. You do make it a joy. Most of you. It's <laughs> real joy. But I will tell you something. Listen, it is heavy. It's heavy. Not only just the counseling and, and, and the people that are wandering away and the sin that people find themselves in and, and the overwhelming task that is before us and the reality that I'm going to stand before God and give an account with all of the rest of our pastors of how well we do this. It's heavy. We were talking about in staff this week that, and this is really true, I believe this is true, if there's something supernatural about this, that the degree of my affections for Jesus Christ on Sunday morning in many ways, determines the degree of your affections when we gather. That's just a supernatural thing about pastoral leadership. So if my heart is cold and I have not spent time with Jesus and I'm not walking in purity, that affects you. And so the heaviness of needing to walk with Jesus, not just for me and my family, but for you, and, and, and the reality of my decisions I make are going to affect you, and, and I gotta lead us in the right way, it's heavy. Joyful, I love it, but heavy. 
And I think that's exactly why you have that next verse, which then says, so pray for us. Do you see it there? Verse 18, pray for us. We're going to give an account before God. Please pray for us. Not only make it a joy for us, which you do, but pray. Uh, the author is unashamedly saying, pray for me as your shepherd. I am saying to you on behalf of your pastors and their families, pray for us. It is a joyful and wonderful and heavy task. And so pray. Pray as it says that we would walk with Jesus. He says, listen, I believe I'm, I'm ministering out of a clear conscience. I'm not hiding anything, but I desire to act honorably in all things. So pray that we would walk with Jesus. Pray that God would keep us from sin. Pray that God would sanctify us. Pray that he would protect us morally and spiritually, emotionally. Pray for our wife and our kids. Pray for us. I'm just asking you. Like I'm just saying, we need your prayers. Because every decision matters. And every Sunday matters. So pray for us. And listen, I'll make a deal with you. If, you. if you'll pray for us, look at the next verse, we'll pray for you. No, that's not a good deal. We're gonna pray for you either way. We are praying for you. Not only throughout the week, but we get together every Monday morning. We just pray. We pray for you. We pray for our church. First thing we do on Monday mornings, 8.30 in the morning, we're gonna be in an office. Your pastor's praying for you. Every time you fill out one of those cards, we pray for it by name. Anything we know about, we pray there's often times, happened two weeks ago, we don't just pray, we weep over you. It's a joyful, but also a heavy time. Because look what it says in verse 20. So you pray for us, but look, and we're gonna pray for you. We're gonna pray that the God of peace would rest upon you. The one who brought Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, that by the blood of the eternal covenant, you might not only know his peace, but he might equip you with everything good. That he might give you everything you need in every area of life, so that you can do his will. That's what we want from you. Working in you, that which is pleasing in his sight, that you might live a life for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what we pray for you. That you would know the peace of God, that it would rest upon you, that you would know his equipping, that you would know how to do his will, that you would walk with him and stay pure and honorable before him. And so, do you see how this is working? Is that the great shepherd who has brought you to himself, has given you the ministry of a local church. So there you might have a fold and there you might have pastors. And the way in which this works is that you pray for us and, and we pray for you and together we hold fast to Jesus. There is nothing individualistic about your walk with Jesus Christ. It is personal. You have to choose personally to walk with Jesus Christ, but you are never intended to be alone. You need a church and you need pastors. And that's exactly why Hebrews 3.13 says, but exhort one another every day. As long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If we don't have the ministry of each other, if we're alone, we're gonna be hardened by sin and we're not gonna notice and we're not gonna have anybody around us to notice. Hebrews 10.25, do not neglect to meet together. Don't neglect to go to church. It's the habit of some, it says, but instead encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, you see the context of that encouragement is in the ministry of the local church. It's saying there's, there's this trajectory, you stop going to church, you stop being around other sheep, pastors are not watching over you, and the result is you fall into sin and everything after that becomes a disaster. Listen, the Lord knows what he's doing. He loves you. He has provided the ministry of a local church for you. I need you. You need me. And we all need each other. 
so when we began this series, I, I read through this book countless times. I decided to title the series, Holding Fast to Jesus. I did it because four times we're told to hold fast to Jesus, four times. It really felt like the feel, even not just the words, but the feel of this book, this word of exhortation, hold fast, hold fast. The reason I chose to preach this book now is because coming out of quarantine, I was really burdened that some people weren't coming back and not just for health reasons, they just gotten out of the habit of coming to church and I was afraid they were gonna drift away. Hebrews 6 says, be careful lest you drift away. I was worried about it. Like I was worried for your souls. I was worried about the condition of our church and I thought Hebrews was a great place for us to be because all it says is hold fast to Jesus, hold on, don't let go. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of temptations. It's so easy to drift away. And so it just keeps saying, hold fast to Jesus because he's better and there's nothing better than Jesus. So don't let go of Jesus. I feel like we still need this message. We need it now more than we ever have before. Hold fast to Jesus. And then after 12 and a half chapters of holding fast to Jesus, Do you know why the book of Hebrews ends the way that it does? By giving us this one last word for Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. It's because after all of these admonitions to hold fast to Jesus, the author wants to make sure we know this. Listen, that in all of your holding fast to Jesus, just know this. The only reason you're holding fast to Jesus is because he's holding fast to you. That's it. That's how it ends. When your faith is weak, when you don't feel like you can do it again, when you feel too tired to fight sin and to do what is right, the great shepherd is holding fast to you. You say, where do you get that? Well, I get it from Jesus in John 10 by saying, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I get it from Luke 12, 32, when Jesus says to his disciples, do not fear little flock because it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The great shepherd of the sheep will ensure that you make it until the end. He has never lost one of his sheep and he will not lose you. He is holding you fast until the very end. So listen, yes, you must hold fast. You must You must spend time with Jesus. You might keep your eyes fixed on him. You must hold tightly to your confession of faith. You must make sure that you do not drift away. You must get involved in a church and be under the pastoral leadership. You need each other. Yes, you gotta hold fast to Jesus. And yes, he's holding fast to you. And the reason which you will make it faithful until the end is not because of how strong your faith is, but because of how strong his grip is on you. So here's Hebrews, be faithful, hold fast to Jesus and be encouraged because he's holding fast to you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.